Thank you to our praise team. Good to see everyone today. Um, wow, this place is full. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Um, you know, Kenny had shared earlier about the All Abilities Camp, and that is an extension of his ministry through here um, at FCA. And so he's been um, a coordinator for several of our area schools. And so just another extension of the ministry that God's given to him. And so we're so thankful for uh, the All Abilities Camp, but also just all that Kenny's been doing um, in, our, in our area. Uh, so make sure to thank him um, after the service today. Um, we have been walking through a series in the book of Isaiah. And today we come to Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we really dig into today uh, some of the concepts about Jesus as Messiah. There's some of that that's been mentioned already. Today we focus on it with a little bit more um, intensity. Before I forget, though, sorry, before I forget, if you like to play golf, we're going to have a nine-hole golf course set up out here for you. That's what I was supposed to tell you about um, for the church picnic. So Jordy Ferguson's been putting together a nine-hole golf course. For, I hear it's outstanding, right? Got some... Got some really tough, challenging courses and so uh, holes. And so we're excited about um, that today. Bring a nine iron with you. Okay, you don't need anything else. Just bring a nine iron. And we'll supply all the other equipment that you'll need. And uh, low score, maybe gets a gift card to striplings or something like that. We'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, but thanks to Mike Pauly and thanks to Tyler as well for cooking. What, what, what temperature are we at right now? We're at 209. He's going for 210. So by the end of this sermon... All right, excellent, excellent. So y'all come out for some pulled pork uh, this afternoon. All right, so we're in this series on Isaiah. I wanted to start with a question today, and it's a question that will kind of run the theme of the first half of the sermon today. And this is a question that Jewish people, um, you, you wonder sometimes, especially the material that we looked at the last handful of weeks, why do Jewish people discount Jesus as Messiah? If we see it, if we get it, why are they not able to get it? And so the material that we'll share today will raise that question and help, hopefully help us come up with an answer to that. Our text comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. If you would, stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is Isaiah talking about this coming Messiah. Here we go, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. That last little bit didn't make it. All right, so let's, <clears throat> let's dive into these verses together. I'm just going to move through 6 and 7 fairly quickly, and then we've got a couple other texts that we're going to consider. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Notice the word us in that, in the, in that verse. Um, this is not a child that's given to, exclusively to this child's mom and dad. This is not a child that's for mom and dad alone to give to them, but rather it's a gift that's going to give to the world. It's going to give to all of God's people. Isaiah says of this child that the government shall be upon his shoulder. The implication here is that this will not simply be some Jewish um, celebrity, like a prophet of God, but even more so that this will be somebody who is the government of the Jewish people. Is literally He's going to be the head of the Jewish government. Um, next, Isaiah ascribes four titles there in verse 6 to this messianic individual. He says uh, the first of those titles is that he sh his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor is somebody that you go to to get advice, uh, that you need some kind of wisdom to help you out with the decision that you're making. The word wonderful, as it's translated from the Hebrew, actually indicates some sort of supernatural 
origin. So this is a supernatural advice. This is advice that comes from God. Just as the prophets of God, God spoke directly to the prophets of God, God will also speak directly to this messianic figure. Um, the second title that he gives there is, uh, uh, to this person is Isaiah calls him Mighty God. Now that may not strike you and I as strange, but for Isaiah's audience, that would have been quite a shock to hear Isaiah call this messianic figure a, the mighty God. Um, how could the messianic figure be both God and man? How could this messianic figure who came from the womb of a woman also be God in the flesh? Well, we know the answer to that, John chapter 1 and verse 14, which says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God inhabiting human flesh, came to the earth, and that's how he is both mighty God and this Messiah. He's no mere man. Number three, Isaiah gives this messianic figure the name Everlasting Father. This could be translated Father of Eternity or Father of the Ages. It's not pointing to the fact that he is a father, but rather it's pointing to the fact that he is over all of time. This is going to be, this messianic figure is going to transcend time. It's going to be Alpha and Omega. The fourth title that Isaiah gives is Prince of Peace. In light of the other three titles, we might think that it would be more appropriate to call this messianic figure King of Peace, right? Why would he be the Prince of Peace? Well, again, the concept of prince taps into the fact that this is going to be a son, the sonship of this messianic figure, which, again, perfectly uh, feeds into Jesus' understanding of the sonship of him as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So those are the titles that Isaiah ascribes to this messianic individual. It gives us a better sense of the uniqueness of his personhood. This is no ordinary individual. This person is an exceptional individual. And so that's who he is. Now we ask the question, well, what is this messianic figure going to do? Verse 7 answers that for us. Take a look at verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah is saying that the government that sets on this fellow's shoulders will continue to grow, will continue to expand and in perpetuity. It's just going to continue to grow. The word that's translated peace in the Hebrew is the Hebrew uh, word shalom. Shalom indicates more than just the absence of war. It's more than just the cessation of hostilities. But shalom is where the people of God... Um, their heart begins to beat as God's heart beats. They begin to yearn for the things that God uh, that are that, that resemble God's character. And so Isaiah goes on to say in verse seven that this government, this kingdom, will also be established and uphold justice and righteousness. So there'll be no more injustice in the streets during this messianic figure's reign. There'll be no more injustice in the courts. There'll be no more injustice in politics or in your workplace. That this messianic figure will bring justice. He'll bring righteousness to the whole of society. Um, there will be just judgments there. And then he finally says in end of verse 7 that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, this is not going to be some sort of manufactured, man-made uh, society, but rather this is going to be something that God presents, that God produces um, for the people of the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Based on what you just heard, has the day that Isaiah is describing taken place? Like, look around you, turn on the evening news, have we got justice reigning in the streets? Have we got righteousness everywhere you look? Um, and the clear answer to that is no way. Not even close, right? Uh, do we have in the world today a government led by a wonderful counselor? Do we have in the world today a government? Have we ever had in the, in the history of the world a, a, a leader that the, that, the, that the other rulers of the world would say, you know what, that's the father of 
of everlasting life, or father of eternity. That's, that person is the prince of peace. Everywhere he goes, everywhere that this person uh, presents himself, he's bringing shalom with him. Have we ever had a government or a leader like that? A government whose citizens do the will of God and whose heart beats as one with Almighty God. Not just some random government, by the way. This is a government that is based on, back in verse 7, the throne of David. So this person that's going to bring leadership like this is uniquely from the family, from the bloodline of David. So this is Jewish in origin. So the leader, at least, has to be um, uniquely Jewish. Friends, I think the answer is very clear. There is no such government existing in the world, nor has there ever been. There have certainly been some good governments, but none that have even come close to this kind of perfection that's being described. What we've discovered in this passage is the first of many places in the book of Isaiah where he describes a coming golden age. A coming golden age. This will be an era marked by shalom, marked by justice, marked by righteousness. All of these characteristics of this new society will be inaugurated and sustained by this messianic figure whose bloodline is connected back to the throne of David. So there's some very specific criteria, not just about the society itself, but about the messianic figure where he comes from, his origin, all those sorts of things. Permit me for just a few moments to show you in the book of Isaiah a few other places where Isaiah is describing this messianic figure. Over in Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those times. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, upon this messianic figure, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Verse 4, And with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So again, this is a really elevated society. Do you get that sense? I mean, just a society that's just operating and functioning as perfectly as it possibly could. Justice reigns, righteousness reigns, all these sorts of things. He says down in verse 6, he begins to describe not even how people relate to one another, but how creation relates to itself under his reign. Look at verse 6. It says, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. How is that possible? How is a wolf supposed to lay down with a lamb and the lamb feel safe and secure? Well, under this messianic figure's reign, that's the way things are going to be. When this guy takes office, not only is he going to change the function of government and the heart of people, but he's also going to alter the balance of creation itself. Still in verse 6, he says, The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and with the lion. In other words, so pervasive will be the change that this messianic figure brings, that even a little child, he says, will be able to lead them, that is, lead the lion, lead the wolf around uh, wherever he goes. He says in verse 8, that the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Um, I've got a picture for you here. I won't leave this up very long. Um, so this is, this, these are these, I mean, can you imagine a two-year-old uh, hanging out with Mr. Cobra or, or, the, or the little baby that crawls, crawling over to the hole of the adder or the viper there. I'm taking them home, home as pets. Again, Isaiah, you can go ahead and move that slide away. The, Isaiah is speaking about a coming golden age in which all of creation and all of the peoples of the earth live in perfect harmony with one another. Now again, I ask you, has a day like this ever dawned 
on planet Earth? And we would say, clearly, clearly not. Clearly it hasn't happened. Where children play with cobra or where wolves lay down and take naps with sheep. Has there ever in the history of the world this sort of a thing happened? You say, well, maybe in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? But no, not in real life has this happened. We have seen in the last handful of weeks Isaiah making predictions about the future, and that is what this is. It's another of the predictions that Isaiah makes. One of his predictions was that the Babylonians would rise to power. He said that 100 years before the Babylonians did it, before they accomplished it. The Babylonians were nobody at the time. They were just a little vassal state within the big Assyrian empire. And so he said, hey, look, this people group called the Babylonians is going to rise up. They're going to take over that part of the world. And sure enough, 100 years later, that's what happened after the time of Isaiah. He said the Babylonians would conquer Judah, and they would take many of the people from Judah into captivity or exile again. That is exactly what happened. He said that the Babylonians would themselves be defeated later on by a group of people called the Medes. Again, who are the Medes? What are you talking about, Isaiah? 150 years fast forward, sure enough, here come the Medes. And he even said the name of the guy who would lead the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire. He said his name was going to be Cyrus. Sure enough, here comes this guy named Cyrus, leads the Medo-Persians against the Babylonians, and the Babylonian Empire falls at Cyrus's hand. And there are many, many other episodes in the book of Isaiah where he was spot on with his predictions of the future. Now, real quickly, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is Moses teaching the Israelites. He says to them about prophets or about people who claim to be prophets. He says, here's how you can tell the real ones from the phonies. He says, Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of his words. And then the opposite of that is assumed is that, well, if the prophet's predictions do come true, if the things that they predict about the future do happen, then this is the real deal that we're dealing with here. And so again and again and again, in Isaiah's words of book of the Bible here, Isaiah makes these predictions about Babylon, about Cyrus, about the Medes, all these sorts of things, and all of it comes true, which according to the litmus test that Moses gives the Israelites back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, then Isaiah passes the test, right? He passes uh, the mustard test, if you would. Um, Now, Isaiah said a lot of stuff, and as we've noted, Isaiah's stuff did come true. Fast forward now 700 years to the time of Jesus, And you have a nation full of Jewish theologians armed with the book of Isaiah and one more prediction about this messianic figure that we haven't seen happen yet. I mean, you clearly know that that has happened, right? Because the wolves are lying down with the lambs or, or, you know, peace and justice have come to the government. But none of those things have happened. And so Isaiah has been spot on with everything he said so far. But now we're here at the time of Christ, and you've got all these Jewish theologians that have been hunting, that have been looking for this messianic figure that Isaiah said was going to come out onto the scene, and they've been looking for him. And so we fast forward to the time of Jesus, and the disciples are told, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. He's telling the disciples this, and he's going to suffer many things. And that the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. Now remember that this is right after the apostle Peter had just said, Jesus said, well, who do you think I am? And Peter said, I think you're the Messiah. That's who you are. You're the guy that Isaiah has been talking about. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, and all these other places in his book. 
And so now Jesus says, the Messiah is going to have to go and suffer. It's going to be handed over to the doctors of the law. And they're going to not only, uh, not only is he going to suffer, but he's also going to be killed. So it is no wonder, think about this, it is no wonder why Peter, in, in verse 22, would take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Haven't you read Isaiah? Don't you know what the Messiah is supposed to do? He's supposed to sit on the throne of David. This is why another episode in the Gospels, this, uh, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, she comes to Jesus with her two sons, and she wants to request something from Jesus. And so Jesus turns to her. He says, Matthew chapter 16, uh, no, that's a different verse. Um, I went, got ahead of myself. Anyhow, she says in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20, um, the, mother's, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, come to Jesus with their sons. And they rec- so basically, they basically recruited their mom to come and ask Jesus this. I mean, great guys. That, that's really nice. I don't know if she was kind of one of those performance mothers or something like that. I don't know how this worked. But anyhow, so she goes to Jesus, and Jesus says to her in verse 21, what is it that you want? What is it that you want to ask of me? And she says, say, say this she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand. I mean, those are the seats of power for the person who's going to be sitting on the throne. This is kind of like the vice president and the secretary of state. She's trying to secure a position of high power in the Messiah, Jesus's new kingdom. Again, the expectation of the Jewish people, the expectation of the disciples themselves was that, yeah, Jesus, you've been really nice but I know there's going to come a day when like the strong arm is going to show up and you're going to, you're going to push your way in there and everybody's going to part the ways and you're going to sit, sit, on, sit on David's throne and you're going to install this government and then the wolf's going to go lie down with the lamb and the kingdom of God is going to show up. And so, that's what, so she says, one sit at your right hand, one sit at your left, in your kingdom. Again, what does this show? It shows that the expectation the Jewish people had that the Messiah would be a conquering king, a ruler. And then the other disciples find out about this, and they're frustrated, they're mad, they come and give James and John a hard time. Really what they're saying is, I'm sorry, I didn't think to ask this first, right? One more. You remember the episode of Jesus' triumphal entry. The crowds welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, waving their palm branches, symbols of royalty, shouting, Hosanna, which means Savior or Rescuer, Mark chapter 11 and verse 9. Hosanna. This is them welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, thinking that he is the messianic figure, the one that Isaiah had been preaching about, this conquering king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They thought Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, that he was going to fulfill all that stuff. Friends, all of that expectation that the Jewish people had of this messianic figure was rooted in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah had been predicting that this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to take over. He's going to install this government. And creation itself is even going to be changed. And so that's what they were looking for. If you ask a Jewish person today, why is it that you do not believe Jesus is the Messiah? They will tell you, where is the wolf? that is lying down with the lamb? Where is the leopard that's being led around by a child? Where's the child that's playing over the hole of the cobra? Where's the government that upholds justice and righteousness? 
In other words, why are Isaiah's predictions about the Messiah unfulfilled if Jesus really was the Messiah? All right, well, that is our treatment of this topic for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. The question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let's answer the challenge posed by the Jewish person. If Jesus is Messiah, then why isn't the kingdom of God here? I mean, he, Jesus himself was announcing this, right? He, everywhere he walked and showed up, he was saying, hey, look, kingdom of God's here. Kingdom. Not that it's near, that was John the Baptist's message. Jesus' message was, it's here. Isaiah's prediction, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, all that stuff is here. It's now. So, and how do we explain that then? In Christian theology, we have a concept called already, not yet. I've got a slide for you here. This concept teaches that the kingdom of God has come already, but that it has not come in its fullness yet. So it's already here, but in its fullness Everything you read about the details in Isaiah 9 and 11 is not here yet. Um, allow me to explain. Jesus has conquered Satan and the powers of evil. We know that. As a result, the gospel goes forward. It goes outward. It's expanding in perpetuity across the globe. But the final victory, the extinguishing of God's enemies, has yet to happen. That is the consummation of the kingdom. The kids playing with cobras. Christ reigning in the world. The world being a state of shalom. All of that will not happen until a yet future Time. Yes, the kingdom of God has come, but it's not here in its fullness yet. So we are in this in-between era of human history where the kingdom of God has come already, but we're waiting for it to come in its fullness. Um, it is for this reason that Jesus instructed us to pray, thy kingdom come. It's here, but it's not here in its fullness yet. Let me show you this on a timeline. Sometimes these kind of visual things help me to parcel it all out, wrap my head around it. Um, the culminating event of human history is the return of Christ. And I've preached about that, talked about that a number of times in recent months even. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that there's going to be a trumpet blast, the Lord Jesus will appear in the sky, the dead in Christ will rise. This event will mark the end of human history, the end of time. So the little mark there on the timeline is the end of time. If human history comes to a close at the return of Christ. That will also begin the golden age. It will begin the final judgments of God and then the establishments of a new earth on which children will play with cobras and wolves will lie down with sheep. Sin will be no more, death will be no more, and the kingdom of God in all of its fullness will have arrived. So that's the already, not yet concept. And it answers, hopefully, the challenge that Jewish people pose that, well, if Jesus is the Messiah then why hasn't the kingdom of God come? Well, it has, but not in its fullness yet. What difference does any of this make to your life and to mine? Well, simply put, we've got work to do. We're not there yet. Like the kingdom of God in all of its fullness has not happened yet. And so for this reason, Jesus commissioned his disciples, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He didn't tell the disciples to go plop down in their recliner and just wait around for his return. Rather, he commissioned them to go, and he's saying the same thing to you and I. The job is not done yet. Once, hopefully, or one of these days, hopefully, each of us will retire from our earthly employment. But as believers, as followers of Christ, 
We never retire from doing ministry. I had one friend who said, retirement is what heaven is for. I thought it was pretty good. Retirement is what heaven is for. And that's the kind of perspective that we need to have here when it, when it comes to the kingdom of God, that we're always working for the Lord. We're always giving to the Lord. We're always um, under this commission that he has given to us. What, number two, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Jesus taught, number two, Jesus taught very clearly that what we do in this life will have an impact on our experience of eternity. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that's straight from the lips of Jesus himself, right? Jesus also said, Matthew 16 and verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John reports Revelation 20 and verse 12, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Paul tells Timothy to tell the church, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 18, that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? Verse 19, this storing up treasures for them, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for their future afterlife. You know, the danger of this teaching is that we give on behalf of the Lord or in the name of the Lord in order to get. And I, th I believe that, that if that's our motive, that God's not going to uh, deposit those things into our heavenly bank account. We want to make sure that our motive is pure. If we give to get, I don't know that God's going to um, credit that to us in eternity. So our heart needs to be in the right place when we give, when we serve, and so on. Nevertheless, Jesus did teach without apology. This is a biblical teaching, friends, straight from the lips of Jesus himself, that what we do with our resources in this life, what we do with the time that we've been given in this life, what we do with the talents that God has um, entrusted to us in this life, that may sound self-serving to us, but friends, that is biblical teaching. That when we give to the Lord, when we serve him, friends, that God wants to reward us on the other side of eternity. Um, our God is a just God, and he wants to reward you and I for what we have done on his behalf and in his name. You say, well, what is the reward? I mean, what is it that God's going to give to us? I have no idea. Um, but I know that if Jesus wants to give you a gift you're going to be really happy with it, all right? And it's going to be something that you'll cherish, and it'll be something that you're really, really glad that you have. Finally, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Number three, the, the coming golden age, what we might think of as heaven. You don't get to go there. You don't get to go there unless you put your faith and trust for eternity in the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the one whom Scripture called the Prince of Peace. Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus said, I'm the way. He said, nobody gets to the Father. Where's the Father? The Father's in heaven. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. Friends, Jesus is God's exclusive solution to your sin problem and mine. God is holy. We are not. If we want to enjoy the coming golden age with him, the way to do that is through trusting Jesus as Messiah. If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, I want to invite you that before this day comes to a close, to find your needs, I want to invite you to turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Invite him into your life. Invite him to be 
your Messiah. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for a chance to uh, just pause here during our, the front end of our week uh, before your word, to hear your truth spoken over our lives. Lord, you shape our perspective week in and week out as we encounter your eternal truth. God, we ask now as we turn toward this table, reminded, Lord Jesus, of your broken body and of your shed blood, the sacrifice that you were willing to make so that we could spend eternity with you forever. Lord, you are our hope. We hope in none other. Speak to us, encourage our hearts this morning as we share in this meal. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.